Welcome to the Grow My Salon Business podcast, where we focus on the business side of hairdressing. I'm your host, Anthony Whitaker, and I'll be talking to thought leaders in the hairdressing industry, discussing insightful, provocative, and inspiring ideas that matter. So get ready to learn, get ready to be challenged, get ready to be inspired, and most importantly, get ready to grow your salon business. Hey, it's Anthony here, and welcome to today's episode of the Grow My Salon Business Podcast. It's great to have you here with us today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast app. Now, with the array of guests that we feature on the podcast, I frequently speak about the fact that there's a lot of movement happening in the ever-evolving salon business model. I think that it's important to remember that it's not a case of there being only one way of running a business that's right and everything else being wrong, but instead to recognize there are probably some business models and ways of working that are more suitable to you than others. And what might be right for you today may not always be right for you in the future. So it's always good to have an open mind and understand how other salon owners are adapting the way they work and run their business. Business models don't constantly evolve just for the sake of it. They change as a result of the pressures on the existing way of doing things. And if the existing way of doing things is no longer working, then you need to adapt what you're currently doing. My guests today on the podcast are Philippe Santos and David Brodsky, co-owners of a group of salons in New Jersey, and they have a different take on how they run their business, which they're going to share with us on today's episode. In today's podcast, we will discuss the business model that Philippe and David have, the importance of flexibility in today's workplace, team leaders and managers, and the value in giving team leaders a percentage of profit and the opportunity to buy into the business, and lots more. So without further ado, welcome to the show, David Brodsky and Philippe Santos. Hey, Anthony, it's great to be here. Thank you, Anthony, for having us. It's, it's fantastic to uh, have another couple of uh, Jersey accents on the podcast. I had one uh, not that long ago. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have you guys on. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to talking to you because I know you're going to bring a, a different, you know, slant to salon ownership and running businesses today. So uh, we've got some great stuff to dig into. But before we do that, um, let's just start off with an overview of you and your background. I sort of get all my guests to do this. So, you know, who is David Brodsky? Who is Philippe Santos? If you sort of give us your, you know, two or three minute backstory. And then once we've done that, we can uh, we can dig into, uh, uh, you know, more serious stuff about your business and how you run it. So uh, over to you, Philippe, you go first. Oh, how you doing, everybody? I'm Philippe Santos. Um, we have uh, the Room Verona uh, hair salon. Um, how I got into it, my wife is a hairstylist and I have a tattoo shop previously. And so obviously the goal was to open up our own salon and um, we, we got together and we, we opened up our own salon and uh, we linked up with David down the line because he was kind of like doing the same thing, working with his wife too. And um, he was doing some of the things that we couldn't do, which was uh, just time constraints in terms of education and stuff. And we were bigger on the business and in social media. And that's kind of how we linked up together. And Anthony, um, 
I don't want to go over too much that Philippe did, but um, together we own four salons at this moment. We're in the process of opening a standalone education studio. Um, I'll go back a little bit. Uh, I've been doing hair for over 20 years, about 22 years. I was raised in the industry. My grandmother owned multiple salons. My mother worked in salons. So I was the little kid sweeping up. Uh, everyone would throw me a buck. And uh, I fell in love with the industry way before I ever learned to do hair. Um, Philippe and I met each other through um, kind of not that normal terms. So um, my personal background is uh, I come, uh, I'm in what we call an addict, right? Um, I stopped using drugs and alcohol about 10 years ago. Um, and that's how Philippe and I met each other. I opened my salon after being clean um, for about two years. And uh, through what we call the horrors of addiction, right? My life got pretty bad, uh, as you can imagine. After I cleaned up, I had a new lease on life. And that's when I opened my first business, which is Artisan Architects. After being open about um, five years, opening a second location, um, I linked up with Philippe. I asked him, uh, let's go to lunch and network. And I looked for someone who had a mindset like myself, very positive, energy-based, who's making pushing boundaries in the industry. Also, not to mention, he worked as a partner with his wife, as do I. So I was like, we have a lot of things in common. He owns a salon. I own a salon. We had a lunch together. I think within two or three days, we looked at a location and we signed the lease a week later. Um, of course, we had no operating agreement, <laughs> nothing except a great idea. And we liked being around each other. Um, fast forward, uh, we opened, uh, we have two salons, the education studio, not to mention we've opened about six other companies that are kind of outside of uh, the salon industry and kind of in it, um, you know, bought some properties. We, we just have a very good relationship together and we've learned how to uh, communicate and, and grow together as a, a partnership. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's uh, fantastic. So did you meet through your wives? Were they, did they know each other beforehand? No, we, we met in recovery, right? We call right, it over okay. here like, into yeah, yeah. Narcotics anonymous meetings. I knew Dave did hair. And then it just happened that our wives did hair too. And like he yeah. said, fast forward a few years, we both had salons. We had too much in common not to talk to each other. Sure. And, you know, they knew of each other, but then they got reintroduced uh, through us when we linked up. Yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a, a great story and, and great outcome that, you know, has come out of it from, you know, addiction to now is this sort of entrepreneurial journey where you've got, uh, you know, multiple businesses. Uh, now I, I knew you had salons and I knew you had a tattoo shop and I knew you were uh, looking at opening um, an education facility, but what are the other, other businesses that, that you're involved in? So we have uh, real estate properties too. We have about 35 uh, doors as they're called or units. Yeah. Um, we have, uh, we do everything in house in terms of, we have a media agency. So we run our own ads, we do our websites, our logos. And this all stemmed from just like growing the number of businesses we had instead of outsourcing, you kind of had to almost do it in house. Um, and, you know, we distribute to ourselves also whatever product we get. We have more buying power. So as we grew with 
more salons and more businesses, we learn how to be efficient and get a either a better price or, or um, you know, put systems in place that's going to help us be more efficient. We learned how to go a little more vertical to where we didn't have to outsource things. Sure. Okay. All right. Um, so at this point in time, you've got four salons. Am I correct with that? Correct. Yes. Right. But it's, it's just, you know, I could ask in half an hour and it could be a different number. <laughs> Like with your entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. And I mean that in a serious way that, uh, you know, that you guys are on a mission to grow and anything could possibly happen here. Um, so how many staff do you have? I would say altogether 45, 50, somewhere around that range, more or less. Right. Average okay. about 10 to 12 per salon. Yeah. So when we were talking about this the other day, one of the things that came up is, and I, I made some questions that I want to ask you about today was that, um, essentially, you've got these four salons. Um, they've got different names. I'm correct in saying that, aren't I? Yes. Right. Correct. So I wanted to I want to ask you about that from a marketing perspective. You know, sometimes there is you know great benefit in in terms of cost savings and stuff if you're building a brand if they've all got the same name. What What was your thoughts behind them all having you know uh, different names? Are they all in the same you know location, so to speak, the same part of the city? So they're all in different areas. We have, um, it, it's across New Jersey and we're in four different towns. Um, I could give you the whole answer like, yeah, they have their own identity. They're all a little bit different. But the reality from my perspective is uh, my first salon was called Artists and Architects. Uh, it's yeah. still in, in Ridgewood, New Jersey. I opened a second location um, under the same name. Um, the, that salon no longer exists. I was able to sell it to my, my old partner. Um, yeah. I learned through that process that as long it is great to have your name out all over the place. It is hard to control the, the culture in multiple different locations, especially logistically. Um, and then moving fa fast forward, opening the three other salons, we kind of saw that each one has a little bit of a different identity. So I think we spoke uh, last the, before, and for instance, our salon in Verona is like known as a color salon. They do like 80% color, um, especially like painting and, and balayage stuff along and, and vivid colors. Um, our Ridgewood location is a little bit mo more known for precision cutting. So it's easier to control the culture and the, the vibe that we put out by keeping them their own identity. And then this way they can, we grow as a brand together because they all vibe off of one another. Um, but they, they keep their own identity and are able to um, like stick and move as they please. Okay. And are they the same uh, target market that each of them attract or, you know, are they aimed at, you know, a different sort of demographic? No, I, I would say the same age demographic and location. So uh, most of the salons are anywhere from 10 to 10 to 15 miles like difference. Right. So uh, when we, okay. when the, the demographic in terms of age is the same, our clientele is pretty much the same, right. Same hmm. age looking for the same thing. So it's easy when we uh, look for new clients or do marketing, I would say the, to answer your question before, I would say the only difference is maybe like in merchandising or something like that, where everything has a different name, but um, Color-wise, we use all the same product in the back of the house. We use the same retail in the front of the house, uh, and our costs become a lot more, um, you know, leaner because we're, we're able to buy everything like that in bulk. 
Yeah. Okay. And they're all the same price uh, price point. Yes. Correct. Right. Okay. Cool. And and one of the things that that you were telling me about the other day is that essentially they're small salons. Yes. Um, and I was thinking about it afterwards. I thought, so what what was your thought behind that? I mean, I don't know about your previous businesses, David, but often people. You know, they want one big salon, you know, with, with 20 chairs, 30 chairs, whatever, because they sort of feel it's easier to to manage one space rather than have four spaces that are split around four different locations, all 15 miles apart, um, you know, that, that it's just harder to sort of keep an eye on things. So, so what was your thinking behind this business model of having more salons that are, you know, small? Yeah, M- multiple reasons. Our business model is... We like to have a low overhead, so we keep our salons very lean, efficient. Uh, it starts with the rent. Like we make sure we have a very manageable uh, rent roll. So we're in great neighborhoods. Like we're in Montclair, Ridgewood. These are very affluent, beautiful neighborhoods. But we make sure we find rent that is sustainable, where we're not going to be, uh, you know, struggling to pay our rent if we do have a down week or two. Um, we also, our salons being that they're only, um, like I said, 10 to 12 people, especially during COVID, I noticed this, we're a small ship that can pivot at any moment. So we're able to change the direction of what we do very easily because of that. Now, all our salons run with the same systems. So we do everything as a whole, like we said, our pricing, um, our buying uh, decisions we make are across the whole brand. But because it's a manageable team of, say, 12 people or 10 people, we also have those broken down into two smaller teams within that salon. So it's very easy to manage our team and pivot at any moment. Yeah, I, I must admit that was something I learned the hard way as well in business, you know, that my, well, you know, one of my salons um, had uh, what I think th- 28 people in it. And there's nothing wrong with that. Having a big salon, 28 people, but it's so much harder to manage than Stop. a salon with 10 people in it, you know? And, and I think that there's a natural thing that happens. Um, as if you compare it to sport, I think most sport teams, you know, like football has 11 people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Soccer. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, cricket or whatever. Rugby, I think, you know, um, has has 15 on the field at any one time. And so, and I think that once you start to get above those numbers, you start to sort of get teams within teams and it becomes a lot harder to manage. So, um yeah, I, I think that there is a sweet spot in terms of managing people and controlling the culture uh, that, that is, is very much reflected in the number of people that you've got. Did, did you start all those salons from scratch or did you buy distressed businesses? So we started all of them from scratch except our latest one that we acquired. We actually closed last week on it. Yeah. Um, that's just like how it happened. And then obviously uh, – you know, in um in our industry over here, they saw that we had we can manage a few salons, so somebody offered us uh, a, another salon. But usually, it's uh it's from scratch. Okay, so how do you you know? I know David, you're the you're a hairdresser. Philippe, you're not a hairdresser. Uh, I don't know, David. Are you still behind the chair as well? I mean, I suppose what I'm asking is, how have you divvied up your roles? Who's responsible for what? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it actually was the catalyst for our growth. Um, 
after Philippe and I got together, we opened uh, our Montclair location together. It's called the Artist Room Salon. And um, after being open, let's say two or three months, Philippe had to come to me and have an uncomfortable conversation like, listen, I know you're behind the chair. I was behind the chair four days a week. Um, I would show up. I was a visitor in that salon. You know, I wasn't running anything. I was more of an idea, you know, and he had to have the uncomfortable conversation with me um, that like, listen, this isn't what I signed up for. You know, like I love being a partner with you, but if it's going to continue like this, where I'm doing all the work and showing up and you're behind the chair making money at your other salon, um, it, this isn't going to work out. So I, I understood what he said and it actually made our partnership really grow close to where we, we can have those uncomfortable conversations and they're actually comfortable. Um, but at that point is when I made the decision and uh, I set a date, I, I stopped working behind the chair. At that moment, the moment I stopped working behind the chair, we exploded all of the salons. We were able to, listen, I wasn't, I didn't have a job in my business like anymore. When I was behind the chair, I had a job. When I um, stepped out from behind the chair, I was able to run and grow our businesses and also scale scale them to where I wanted to be. So all those decisions that like we always wanted to make, be it, oh, I wanted to make teams. I wanted to um, get rid of our receptionist. I wanted to change this system. They were never able to be uh, made because I was behind the chair and I was looking at it from an emotional perspective as a stylist. When I changed and, and stepped out from behind the chair, we were able to make decisions based on our company and our brand and what's good for our team. At that moment is when I, I believe we started to lay the foundation for us to grow where we are like two or three years later. Okay. So that's very interesting about, you know, your, your working relationship and your partnership. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Cause I think that's, you know, that's a real challenge for a lot of people. I mean, I, I was listening to someone recently, uh, a podcast and he was saying how they cold reality of it is that most partnerships don't work. Uh, he said, with the exception of um, legal firms and uh, medical firms. Uh, this, that's what this guy said. He said that most partnerships simply don't work. And so what I want to ask you about, you obviously have a really good partnership and you sort of touched on some of this already, David, with how you just answered that. Um, what's the secret to having a successful partnership? Go for it. One word, communication all the time, not just when you're happy and things go well, having a clear cut communication. I could go to David when things, when shit hits the fan, so to say, and he could come to me. The, the quote unquote difficult conversations after we did a few of those, like he said, they're not as difficult. We're comfortable saying that to them. I know I'm not going to get the knee jerk reaction from David. I might not get like, hey, thanks for calling out all my character defects. I appreciate it. But he'll sit with it. <laughs> he'll sit with it a little bit. And then I know by the next day, we also have some things like we don't yell. We don't yell not only at each other. We don't raise our voice. We don't talk to anybody like that. We have a very like uh we have a 24 hour rule. It's not like we made a checklist of these things. It's just things we believe in. We do 80, 20 also. So it's not a 50, 50 partnership. It is on paper, but it's not in terms of day to day. Sometimes I'm doing 80% of the workload and he's doing 20. That's okay. Other times he's doing 80 
and I'm doing 20. I went to I went to Europe for a month. I disappeared, and David was gracious enough to stay behind and take over the workload. And 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 it's a lot, but he also knows that when he has to go, I take it over. So we don't keep the expectation of like I'm. We're not. Um, we're not keeping score or measuring in terms of who does more work at all. We just have a goal. We we're in the results business and the solution business and however we get there. And, and listen, there are bumps in the road, but I'll go back to it again. Like communication is key. Most of my relationships or partnerships, any of them that didn't go very well is because one side or the other had, um, they didn't want to communicate. It turned into a resentment and then it turned into anger and fear and then, you know, it, it's hard to like come back from that. Sure. Um, you you put this uh, on the on the table, so to speak. So I'm I'm going to dig into it a little bit because you're obviously comfortable sharing it. And you talked about how you met and, and addiction, etc. And so as you're talking, I'm sitting there thinking, I wonder how much that helped. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like like going to Narcotics Anonymous or whatever. And just, you know, I mean, getting coming through the other side of a, a drug addiction, you know, is, is, is not easy for anybody. And so, you know, you have to dig really deep and you find out a hell of a lot about yourself. And uh, so I'm sort of wondering, I'm just looking for positive in that, uh, because there obviously are lots of positive, aside from the fact that you're clean. Um, you know, what did you learn through that that has helped you be better business partners, better business people, better humans, so to speak. Uh, I'll, I'll take a minute on this, and I know probably Phil wants to yeah. share on it. Um, what, if I can make it simple, number one, it was perspective. So the biggest change in my life was perspective. I was no longer um, a victim for life, right? I became the volunteer. I was in control of my life now. So uh, for years being addicted to drugs and alcohol, I was a slave to it. Um, once I was able to, to sh shed that one day at a time, um, I was able to take control of my life. Now, what I'll say is when, when you have that addictive personality, you have the addiction of more, right? So the, the beauty of it is that I want more growth. I want more of everything at all times still to this day. And it is a big part I know of what drives me. And I could say the same for Phil. Um, with that, you start to learn, like Phil brought it up, like your character defects. What are the things holding you back? So once you know those things, it's easier to work on them or you see yourself coming, so to speak. Um, so it's able, you can kind of get out of your own way because the only person holding us back, I believe is myself. Like no one's got their foot on my neck. I'm in control at any time. I could grow as big as... I want to, and I can um, achieve anything that I believe I wanted to. And I learned that because I got over such a hard, um, you know, I thought forever I was going to be addicted to drugs. And then once you get over that, you realize like nothing can stop us now. Mm. Okay. Phil, you got anything to add to that? Yes, <laughs> I, I do a little bit. So I grew up like a lot of people, like I had great aspirations. I had, I didn't know what, but I knew I wanted to do something or be something or, or give back. And, um, you know, I, I fell into uh, drugs and alcohol because I thought I was having a, a good time at first. And then it was like almost two decades stuck doing that. And, um, you know, from like going to jail, going to rehabs, you know, all, all the things that come to it. I thought I was going to be stuck like that too. And, and I believe the biggest thing is because I felt I was a victim, 
why is everything happening to me, not for me? Uh, I didn't get this job. I wasn't raised by these parents, you know, et, et cetera, et cetera. And um, when I finally got clean, I had to take some accountability and responsibility that those were just all choices I made. And once I kind of learned that and I took away, like David said, the, the victim part, um, staying clean became easier, first of all, because I knew I was responsible responsible for my recovery, but also everything else that happened. So, uh, you know, I learned things that like, it's not what happens to you, it's how you react. Right. So like the anger was no longer a tool that I could utilize because it didn't get me the results that I needed to proceed. Uh, I knew that um, running away, being, you know, uh, self-destruction or anything like that wasn't uh, an excuse. I had to hold myself accountable. And, um, you know, I learned how to pick out also a group of people that were kind of doing the things that I either that I either wanted to do or, 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 or aspired to be. And that was like, being positive, you know, having good principles, having good morals, uh, practicing them. Um, fast forward a little bit, like I met my wife in recovery. You know, um, we I, I had a child beforehand and uh, she helped raise him. And, um, you know, I found a lot of the same people with the same ideals and principles. And David was one of them. And, um, you know, it, we apply a lot of the same principles in our life. But I want to make it clear, like it doesn't like for us recovery, we didn't discover these principles or invent them. You know, they're in Buddhism, they're in Catholicism yeah. and every, you know, uh, theological um, area. Um, but when we apply them to our lives, everything becomes a lot more easier and manageable. And then in turn into business, we run our business like that, right? With um, more optimism, more uh, solution-based, uh, more caring, you know, less with the less with the hammer, so to say. Okay, really interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't gone through you know addiction and recovery, etc. Um, but I, I'm imagining, you know, because I just as you're talking, I'm thinking about the partnership and and how that might help a partnership. And all I can imagine is that to come through that, you you must have to have a really honest conversation with yourself, yeah, and absolutely. and stop trying to bullshit yourself and everybody else. So honesty becomes a really integral part of who you are and letting go of the ego becomes a really important part yeah. of, you know, of facing up to that. And both of those things in terms of a partnership working out would be very, very beneficial because often that's what makes partnerships go wrong, that, that there isn't honesty and there's too much ego and stuff that gets in the way. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's amazing. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. I'm sure a lot of people will relate, you know, to that. Um, so let's talk about your business. I mean, we've never met, um, uh, but we did have a, a, a good conversation the other day that was was going to be 15 minutes, and it was at least an hour. Um, but it was good because I I got to sort of understand you know who you were a lot more uh, and what your business was all about, and I. You know, when I got off the call, I, uh, I was sort of reflecting on some of the things that you spoke about. And one of the things that, that seems really obvious is this one word, simplicity, um, that you have looked at, I, I dare say, that you were doing this, David, with, with architects and what did you call it? Artists and architects. Right. That you went from one business model that, from what you said to me the other day, wasn't really working. Um, 
And, and what you have now got is a much more streamlined, simplified business model. So talk to us about um, what exactly that means. What did you take out um, what, you know, of, of these new salons? What, what have you done away with that you had in previous salons that, that, that is uh, working for you so well? Yeah, so I can kind of give a little bit of a story, and I know I talked to you last week about it. So uh, in, I'd say 2018, uh, we had one of our best years. Uh, I might have the year wrong, it might have been 19, but we had one of our best years. We were a six-chair salon, and we did uh, over a million dollars. So we were, as you can imagine, busy, Crank it was like uh, when you walked in there, it was like had this energy of like constant movement, double booking, ton of assistants, front desk managers. I had uh, a personal assistant. I had a, a, a what do I call it, a liaison, communications <laughs> liaison, right? And uh, all the things that I thought made up a successful entrepreneur, businessman, salon. Uh, mm. One of the reasons is what we talked about before. I was behind the chair. I couldn't do any of those jobs. I needed to hire people. Um, so that was the one part. What happened, fast forward, and it's right around the time when I met Phil, and he was a big part of my perspective change. Um, I sat down with my accountant and I sat down with Phil, and it's one of the reasons why I called the meeting, because I was like, listen, we did 1.1. Like, why am I making, like, $70,000 this year. Like I did a lot of work, you know, like we did these numbers and we're bringing in like the, our, our profit margin was like 7% or something like that. Crazy. So uh, it was very deflating. And uh, what happened is uh, Phil helped me go through my numbers and, and we started to see like payroll was extremely high. Um, you have a lot of people doing single jobs as opposed to uh, one person doing multiple jobs. Now we kind of looked at it, of course, like our stylists, we needed to keep all our stylists and all of our assistants were potential stylists. So where, what we like to call, we had to trim the fat and, um, we started to streamline and, and, and get rid of a few receptionists. A big part of it is we got rid of our management structure. And when I say got rid of it, we changed it. Um, we made our stylists become leaders, which then uh, take care of a team. So like we talked about earlier, a team would have four or five people on it. It'll have a leader of that team. There'll be two teams in a salon. Sometimes one of those leaders will also be the leader of the whole salon. Um, those leaders get a percentage of what their team brings in. So there's a team goal. They have their own personal goals. Um, fast forward two years. And COVID was a big catalyst for this because instead of making decisions little by little, COVID gave us the opportunity to pull the Band-Aid off and just change everything. So at that moment when we came back and we were um, able to open our salons, uh, a year later, we had, again, our best year ever. And um, now changed from a 7% uh, profit margin, we're always above 20% now, uh, multiple years in a row. So um, we fall around like the 23 to 24% mark of profit. Now that is also after I'm on payroll as an employee. Um, that is after I pay myself 
So our businesses, and I can speak for all four of them, are, they're very healthy. They, they run at a 20% profit margin year after year. We have 20% growth year after year. Um, and uh, our salons all, all get, now there are six person salons. Each salon gets anywhere from 120 to 150 new clients a month in four different locations. That's not spread across, that's each one. Um, so the systems we put in place are very efficient and uh, they allow us to grow at a rapid pace. Okay. So um, th that's amazing. I mean, first of all, when you said 7% profit uh, that, that you did have uh, in a year where you just thought this is crazy, we did 1.1 million and I'm getting paid seven, 70 grand, I think you said. Um, you know, the average salon in America, and it's not just me that says this, it's, you know, anyone you talk to who's a coach, consultant, who has a good oversight of, of lots of salons, will usually come out and say the same thing. They'll say something like between 4 and 7% and, you know, and they'll say that like some of them are making 10, the odd one 15. You very rarely hear numbers above 15 uh, in terms of profit. And usually when you do, when you dig a bit deeper, it's a case of the salon owner is not factoring in what they pay themselves. And that's the biggest mistake that salon owners make everywhere, whether we're talking in the UK, the US, Australia, whatever, is salon owners will talk about their profit, um, but then when you actually dig into their P&L, what they're calling their profit is actually their, their wages. But you very specifically said that your wages are separate from that. So the fact that you are able to make a 20% uh, profit margin uh, plus, um, is is fantastic and highly commendable and, and shows that it can be done. So let, let's talk about, you know, what, what uh, Philippe, what, what you, you know, were saying, David said that you sort of said to him, listen, you've got too many people here, um, you know, do, doing, doing too few jobs. I know, for example, that you've already told me that you got rid of the receptionist. Now, some people listen to this and be going, but you can't do that. I need the receptionist because the receptionists allow me to be more productive. Because if, if I don't have a receptionist, it means I've got to answer the phone. It means I've got to see the client out. It means I've got to get their coat and their umbrella. It means I've got to sit them down and, and I've got to book their next appointment in. Whereas if I've got a receptionist doing that, it enables me to see another client. So some people are horrified at the idea of you getting rid of the receptionist. Uh, and I know that, um, well, we'll talk about the managers separately. So, so, so talk to us about that, first of all. So uh, in order of like financials, for example, really quick, it's like uh, David, for example, had two receptionists, right? And we're just using generalized numbers. If they're $50,000 each per year, right? That's $100,000 right away. And mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily remove the responsibilities of the receptionist, but we had to look at ways and we had to do that because that's just how we started our businesses. Um, we had to look at how could we pass the responsibilities on to others. And obviously we don't want to give it to the stylist because then they have to stop to do their hair. But we did have assistance and we did have assistance at different entry levels coming in, right? So what we, what we learned to do is we learned to show the assistants how to answer the phone, how to book, especially if they're working with a stylist. Nobody knows how to book their stylist better than the assistant that they're working with. So it became a lot more efficient like that. Also, mm -hmm. we made sure we did a lot of pre-booking so that 
all we were getting primarily were new clients as opposed to repeat clients. The repeat clients, we put them on a system of whether they're coming back in six weeks, eight weeks, three months. We pretty much have the whole year planned out. And they understand that if they don't get in, it's going to be really tough because a lot of our stylists are booked out that way. So once we created that system, we alleviated the urgency to answer the phone as much. Also, regardless if you have a receptionist or not, a lot of like nowadays, a lot of people are emailing and primarily sending direct messages through Instagram or Facebook. So we answer a lot of them like that, but we don't consult or nothing. We get their phone number and then we call them back at our convenience whenever, you know, either in the beginning of the day or the end of the day before uh, before we finished. So once we had those little systems, it helped with the receptionist and it also alleviated, uh, again, the, the the financials of the payroll and it makes your salon run healthier and also without as much pressure. Because when you have financial strain like that, it's really tense in there. It's really like hot. Everybody needs to perform, needs to double book. Everybody just needs to push, push, push because you need to just to hit the 5% or 7% uh, margins. You need to push like that. So it, it, it also gave our assistants that eventually became stylists a better understanding of how to consult with their clients, right? Because a lot of issues we had also was like a reception, somebody would call the receptionist, the receptionist would book. And like everybody knows they would never book how they're supposed to. Some, even at the best salons, things happen. The stylist would be like, hey, you're here for this service, but actually you want something else. Now they're, you know, they're, um, they're running behind or something. And also with um, with upselling and selling retail, it just became, and, and this is for us, I know for other people it works, um, it became a lot of things that we had to fix all the time. So it wasn't worth it for us. We knew there, there had to be a better way. Mm-hmm. And for now, for now, this way is, is working for us. So that's yeah. on the receptionist part of it. Um, some of the other things too we do is that we have, we sell a lot of retail. We do really good with the retail, anywhere from 15 to 20%. We don't pay our stylist commission on the retail. What that allows us is, again, our, our, um, our salons to run a lot healthier, but also to invest that money into education, right? So we could bring a lot of outside education. And so we could have our six week boot camp. So we could have our, we have our social media consulting classes. So we could, um, we could uh, open up a new education facility. So we, we, what happened is, as David said, he stepped away from behind a chair and we get to look at things a lot differently as opposed to that compulsive, like I need these things right now. And it, and it gives us a better understanding of, uh, of where we are at any moment. Okay. Um, wow, lots of good things there to dig into. Uh, you know, when I, when I work with people as a, as a coach, they'll often say to me, I need to get a, a receptionist. Uh, and uh, the, my first question to them is always, well, how many money producers do you have? <laughs> and uh, basically the reason why I'm asking that is that I always say to people is, is that unless you've got a minimum of six people that are producing money, then you simply can't afford a receptionist. Uh, and, and I just say six as a number I pluck out of the air. But but it's, it's you know, the, the harsh reality of it is that um, – uh, you know, if you don't, it, like, if you can have one receptionist with 10 money producers or six money producers or 20 money producers. You can still do it with one good receptionist. But once you've got less than six, 
you know, and you're talking about you've got teams of four or five, it just becomes a luxury that you can't afford. So I suppose what I was going to ask you was if you had bigger salons, if, would you think then that, yeah, a receptionist would be a good idea to get more coordination around that? Uh, I'll answer that. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're building out uh, a new salon right now, and it's going to have 12 chairs, right? Mm-hmm. And we're in the talks that we might need a receptionist. But it's exactly what you said. Like, we have to sit down to do the numbers, and the receptionist yeah. has to pay for itself. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Adding yeah. expenses just for the fact of convenience or luxury. We need to make sure, first and foremost, that our business is healthy because it's not just for us, it's for our stylists to make sure they have all the tools and everything else they need to. So as long as that, and, and it should, as long as we have some base numbers and everything, we know how to factor it in. Like, for example, if we're hitting, you know, $100,000 a month, then yes, we could get a receptionist because we're producing mm-hmm. But if, and I'm just throwing that number, but if it's yeah, less yeah, yeah. than that, then obviously we shouldn't get a receptionist for right now. Yeah, got it. Okay. So you have um, assistants, but you don't have uh, receptionists in the salons. And I know when we were talking the other day that you said to me, you don't have managers. Um, now, I know that, that David has used the term a few times uh, about team leaders and stuff. And that when we were talking the other day, I said, their managers, you just call them a different thing. And we, we, you know, we sort of laughed about it, but they sort of are managers, but they're sort of not managers as well. So let's talk about the thinking behind that when the day came that you decided, do you know what? We're no longer going to have managers, um, but you started calling people team leaders because I think there's some really important distinctions there. So, um, yeah, over to you. Let's just get some of your input on that. So... I remember for, for us, it was like um, my wife and I, my wife was working behind the chair and um, I, I was doing more of the back end stuff. And we were just realizing when we needed to do something like we can't be stuck like this forever where we can't step away. So that pushed us, obviously, to find somebody who uh, who who wanted to like who believed in kind of like what we were doing and had some of those qualities. Not all of them, because none of them do, but just like a little just cared a little bit. And once we found we found that person, like we had to we had to show them the ropes a little bit and everything. And it allowed us to step away. Um, what it also does is obviously you're, you're correct in that they're managers in the sense of like their roles of what they do. But it eliminated that part of the payroll, too, though. Right. So instead yeah. of having separate manager for payroll, um, why not give them some of the finances, right? Some of the financial gain from the salon based on the performance. So we had to get creative and get them, give them an incentive based on what they were hitting. If they, if we were hitting $50,000 a month, they would get, you know, a certain percent commission, anything over that. So it gave them a little bit skin in the game. Um, but I think more event, more than anything, it was like, it's not so much in them doing uh paper pushing paperwork or doing things like that it's more in culture and energy and keeping the team together and talking to them about their goals not just inside of the salon but their life goals knowing what it is it helps us as you grow it becomes difficult to have you know one-on-ones with everybody and have this uh the same emotional attachment to everybody and um and and we've come to the realization that these are not our salons like you know legally we own them but they're not. They, they cultivate a, a culture and, and a team. And it's only right that if they're doing a great job that they run the salons. 
So in in each so the salons are open seven days a week, right? Right. So open seven days a week. You do long days, um, but within those days, you have two different teams. That that's correct, isn't it? Like like you have a team that work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and alternate Sundays, and a team that work Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and alternate Sundays. Have I got that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So a lot of flexibility for hairdressers and that they're doing a three-day week, uh, one week, and then a four-day week the week after, um, uh, but longer days. So there's that flexibility. There's, you know, who doesn't want, like the idea of a, a three-day weekend or whatever? That's fantastic. But they do longer days when they are there. And, right. and, and so you're really maximizing the rent in that location. By effectively, you're sort of almost running two businesses out of the one rent, so to speak. Correct. That that's exactly it. We've doubled it. Yeah. Uh, so you know, uh, it, it became. We didn't plan it that way. It was based on necessity, and then COVID pushed us. And then we were like, "Wait a minute, they love it. We love it. Let's continue." And that's when we switched all the salons over to that. The one we acquired now is only open five days a week. It's like the traditional schedule here. And um, eventually, as we build it up a little more, we have the conversation with them and let them know, too, like, we're going to do the same thing. I, I think we're going to aim for January 1st, just so that it's easier transition for them. But it becomes also easier where they, if they need a day off, they know they only work three days a week. They're not mm. going to take the one day that they produce. They're more efficient. They, they could get more, uh, bigger services in, in a nine or 10 hour day, as opposed to spread out over five days a week. And they're, you know, six or eight hour days too. So yeah. they learn how to schedule. And, and like you said, they love the flexibility of it. Mm, yeah. Okay. And that came out of COVID the, the, because of the social distancing and X amount of people allowed on X square feet, you, you had to yeah. do that. And right. then you came out and thought, this is fantastic. Everybody's loving it. They're doing a, a shorter week, but longer days. It's working for everyone. Great. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. Okay. So are they, um, uh, are they specialists? Like, do you have cutters and colorists or does everyone do everything? Yeah. No, we're, we're not departmentalized. So uh, really each stylist, uh, takes the service from they, they might get their first response from a DM on Instagram. Yeah. Uh, the, the stylist will follow it up with a phone call, which then will result in a consultation, which every client that comes in is required a consultation. We do charge for consultations. We put a lot of value on our team's time. Um, we do have a cancellation policy, uh, 48 hours. Um, so that person will take them in for a consultation. We'll do our strand test, uh, fully walk through the service. They'll know their pricing. Then the stylist will do that service, check it out, and, and take them all the way through the end. Okay. And it's a commission-based salon, yeah? That's correct. correct. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, guaranteed alley rate, you know, and then all commission, whichever is the greater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's it's commission based. Uh, some of our uh, our assistants are hourly, and when they go, they become a pr- protege, which is like in between assistant and a level one. So that's when it's like hourly or commission, whichever is greater. Got you. Okay. So, h- how many different levels do you have? We have five levels, and then before that, we have a protege and assistant. 
Right. Okay. And I know when we spoke about this the other day, you were really open about sharing numbers. Um, can can you talk about the commission levels and where they start at and where they where they finish? Yeah. Yeah. So when a, a a kid out of school or a stylist, however it is, comes into our company, let's say the the entry level would be an assistant. Um, what they're doing there, they're kind of helping out the salon. They get an hourly rate. Um, within six to 12 weeks, we want them to get into a protege uh, level. The protege is somewhere where they're working on clients, they're doing blowouts, they're putting on colors, they're starting to build their book and take on cl- colors and haircuts in a learning phase. So they're being overseen by the higher stylist, by ourselves. Um, at that point, they will either make an hourly rate of or, or a commission, whichever is higher. Yeah. Um, so that starts at about a 35% uh, commission. Then moving up, when you go into a level one, now you get your chair. We make sure by the time you move into a level one, you're, you're never on hourly anymore. You've been making commission on a regular basis. We've shown you how to grow your book. You have daily goals. You have weekly goals. Um, at that point is when you start to raise your commission also. So going from a level one to a level five, you can make up to um, 42%, depending on the level and the amount of money that you bring in. No deduction. And we don't do any deductions. So it's just a straight, just straight 42. Yeah. So when you say no deductions, you mean no deductions for product. Correct. Yep. Color or whatever. Right. Okay, yep. cool. All right. So it starts at 35, goes as high as 42, um, you know, I think five different levels. And then I think you said there was another two or whatever. So, um, okay. And um, the, the other thing that you dropped in earlier on, um, I think you said this, David, you, you talked about how the team leader doesn't just get their commission. They get a percentage of what the team bring in as well. Um, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, this is kind of Phil's Phil's baby, so I'll let him talk about it. So, okay. uh, so the, it's an exact number. So it's a three percent commission that they get on the net, whatever the net is, right? So, if it's uh, again just for ease of numbers, if it's a uh, hundred thousand dollars for the month, and we're just divided in half, if it's fifty, they'd get three percent of the of the of the fifty thousand dollars, right? Okay. So it's easy like that. What's good for them is that they could build their team too. So they're not just capped on that. So if they get another stylist automatically, it's going to add to what their, what that bottom line is and they could get a 3% on that. So they could just keep on doing that. As long as we have that many chairs, usually when they get, we have one like that. So um, we start looking into if they want to open up their own salon or if they want to buy into one of our salons or something like that. Our primary job is to create opportunity for them. But um, all our salons, except the, the newest one we acquired, have two teams and have two leaders, and both leaders get a 3% based on their team. And like Dave said, uh, one of them gets an overall on the whole salon, too, if they have more responsibility and, you know, and allows us to walk away a little easier, too. Mm, also, okay. that, gets, that gets paid out once a month. Yeah. So the leadership yeah. pay is the first paycheck of the the next month so you get paid on one full month so it's always like from their perspective it's a nice chunk of money where it, it it's substantial for them it could add yeah, yeah. Uh, an extra 20 20,000 24,000 on their year 
Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, Phil, can you just qualify what you mean when you say on their net? Uh, on the net, whatever the net proceeds are of, of the salon. We make it simple. So, like, just to not, because we don't want that much work either. Mm-hmm. So if they brought in $100,000, we call we, we cut it in half, and they get 3% on the half, which is $50,000. And that's like because of just what our costs are, right? In terms of payroll, in terms of color, whatever. We know that it's not exactly that. We know we're probably giving them a little more. Uh, there's flexibility there, but that's kind of what, what works for us. And it simplifies it. When we had one salon, it was a lot easier to like keep it like that. When we have four of them, it, it's... And, and listen, the thing too, I, I need to like um, say is that if they don't hit a certain goal when we establish that, they don't get paid that either. So it'll never go into the red because it's only based on performance, not yeah. and go in reverse. So it helps us. It gives them a little more, you know, incentive or, or the carrot on the, on the stick, so to speak. And, um, you know, they, they love it. We started with one salon. It's at three. We're going to incorporate it into the new one. And, and I use it also at the tattoo shop. That's where we kind of developed it out of necessity, too. Yeah, I, I just wanted to qualify that for our audience in other countries, some of the terminology. So so I, I know people will be thinking, does he mean 3% on the profit? And the answer is yes. Yeah, Correct. it's the yeah. net profit. Yeah, okay, cool. Right. All right. Um, so, yeah, this is really interesting. And, and another thing, while we're talking about staff, one of the things that you touched on the other day was, you know, and again, you know, we had a sort of a barrage of information that we were sort of sharing. Uh, and, and one of the things you said is that, when you hire people, you hire people based on energy. And I've never really heard anyone say that. I mean, a lot of times I will usually say hire based on attitude. So, you know, we're in a similar area. But tell us what you mean when you say we hire based on energy because you were really specific about that. Yeah. So it, it, it sound, what we mean is exactly what it sounds like. So... When we sit down with someone, um, and more often than not, it's our wives. Um, Our wives are kind of doing the day-to-day operations. They do a lot of hiring uh, at this point now. But when we sit across from someone, like, what's that initial feeling you get in your gut? Like, are they smiling? Mm -hmm. Is there sunshine in their face? Like, do their eyes sparkle? Like, do they make you feel good when you're sitting across from them and, and, and talking? Because essentially we have these small teams that are very close and they work as uh, one whole unit together. If you throw a little bad energy into that, it becomes uh, now you just ruin the whole team. The team's not going to bring up that energy. The, the bad energy brings down that team. So what I mean by hiring by energy is like, we don't worry about skill, right? Cause we'll teach you anything you need to know. You need to learn how to cut hair, balayage, learn how to answer the phones. Uh, if you need help with your handshake, like whatever it is, we can help you. But mm. what we can't change is the energy that comes out of you mm. on a natural basis. So we just want to see you smile. We want to see you happy because that's the vibe in the salon. And, and we do protect that at all costs. Mm. Yeah, great. Okay, we're on, that. we're on the same page with that then. Okay, so um, when we talk about uh, numbers and figures and, and these different teams, my mind's racing as you're talking. I'm thinking about, yeah, but what if and what if? And so, so one of my what ifs is, is you've got essentially two teams, 
So two businesses within the same business. One of them does Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and the other one does Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and they both do an alternate Sunday, which is great. So one part of me is asking, I wonder which, uh, which of those models is consistently more profitable? Is it, is it, is it, is it or, or more productive? Or does it just depend on the team? Like, is, is a Monday, Wednesday, Friday generally more productive than a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? Or does it really just depend on the team? I'll give you my perspective. And uh, it really has nothing to do with the day. Uh, it has everything to do with the leader of that team. It's just okay. like you would expect. It starts from the top. And yep. if the, the teams with the strongest leaders wind up doing the biggest numbers and mm. have the strongest team, it's just what you would expect. You know, the, the COVID taught us, like, the days, the times don't oh, even matter. Mm. Like, people will not go to work because they're getting your, get their hair done. Like their hair is a priority. It, it's what they look forward to. They pre-book it 16 weeks in advance. Yeah. So yeah. the reality of it is, is um, it, it comes from the leadership. Yeah. Okay. So what sort of goals do you give a stylist over a three-day week? Do they have a, a target that they are set that they should be hitting? Yes. Uh, depending on what level, it could be anywhere from like, like we have basic numbers. I don't have them in front of me right now, but let's say it's $1,500 a day. So if they're working three days, they have whatever level two or three, they need to hit $4,500 for the week. If it's just three days, obviously, if they have that Sunday, then it should be $6,000. So we created a system where every level has a certain goal and it doesn't matter how you get there, whether it's retail, whether it's services, we're not going to hold you back. And if you hit certain goals consi consistently for uh, a certain length of time, obviously, we know you either have to raise your level or commission. So we always have to make sure we have multiple um, opportunities for them to climb, because what we hear from lots of stylists in, in the industry is that the reason they left their other salon is because they were capped. They were at the highest level. They couldn't grow anymore. They couldn't make any more money. And then after that, if you have no aspiration there, usually you end up looking for somewhere else. And so we got to make sure that we don't only cap them out on a certain commission of 42% or a certain uh, price structure or, or, or level. We have to make sure that's where the leadership comes in with paying them a uh, commission based on performance, or if they want to do education, creating that opportunity for them so they could be educators and we could uh, compensate them for that or having ownership of salons. So it's forced us, we wanted to do it anyway, but it's forced us to get creative and on top of it, like it gives us a lot of fulfillment more than anything to just see these people like, like grow, have ownership, buy homes, get married. You know what I mean? Like to be yeah. involved and to know we had just a, a, a little part of that, I think mm. is what drives us for the most part and, and you know, makes us go yeah. to work like that. So, so when they get to 42% uh, commission, even then they're not capped because then they have the opportunity to be a team leader. Right. where they get 3% of the total, um, or they have opportunity to, if I've got this right, to buy into the business, to become a shareholder in the business. Is that is that correct? That's correct. That's, That's correct. Great. Okay. We, so, we currently have uh, two of our employees that became shareholders, 
and it, it's been like, that's been our dream. Like yeah, everyone in our, in our salons to have a piece, like that's where our ultimate goal is. We know where that is. Like we want them all to have ownership in what we do. The one thing I wanted to touch on when it came to the, the goals is the game changer for us was we taught them how to work in reverse. So what I mean by that is we don't give them goals of like, you need to hit five grand a week or 4,500 a week. We bring it into the daily. So then we'll even break it down with them and say, okay, so you have one day, you have 10 hours, right? If you need to bring in $1,500, let's work this out. You have 10 hours in the day, $150 an hour. How are we going to get there? Now they come up with the solutions. We just give them the tools. So that has made them where, because everyone says like a hairstylist is a creative, they hate numbers. It depends how you break it down. Once they get excited and they see the goal and they understand how the whole equation works, you see the light bulb go off and they become unstoppable. They're, they become like a machine and they love the idea. They see the creative process in the numbers behind the goals. That's that's very interesting, and um, is a lot of it. I mean, 150 bucks uh, an hour, 10 hour day to get to 1500. Is uh, are you big color salons? Is that where you're generating that sort of revenue? Yes, primarily oh, color salons. Um, okay. Um, lies in precision cutting too, but we're, that's what we're known for. Correct. Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's a case of uh, doing less clients but with bigger bills. Would that right. be a, a fair way to put it? And right. was that something that came out of COVID that that really got amplified again, that it's it's not about, you know, working yourself to death, doing, you know, 10, 15 clients a day. It's about doing less clients by having bigger bills from those clients. Would that be a fair statement to make? I, I, I think that we were doing it before, but COVID like everything else that COVID touched, it was the amplifier for that, definitely, where we used to double book and we don't really double book as much. And it allows us to just focus on that one client, uh, first and foremost, because COVID kind of and, and the, the mandates and everything forced us to do that. But it also gave us a different perspective and how to, you know, how to look at it. How do we make the same amount of money without having as many clients because we couldn't? Yeah. So once, again, it's just like the teams too. Like once we seen like, wow, this is really working and we could, it, it became after, after the quarantine and the pandemic, it became your vacation to go to the salon. It changed the salon industry too, or, 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 or a lot of service industries to go to a restaurant was a big deal. People weren't traveling as much or anything like that. So we gave them, you know, the, we put more time into it and everything. And now moving forward, like that's just how we book. And that's just how, you know, we do business. Our model was always to work smarter, not harder. And I know that's very, very cliche. We've heard it a million times before, but yeah. that's exactly what it is. And we know our stylists are happier. They have a shorter uh, work week and, and they're more efficient with the time that they have. Mm, great. Okay. Um, you mentioned, David, I think that that you're getting 120 to 150 new clients. Did you say every month or every? Yeah, every month. 
month. Every month in each salon. Yep. In each salon. Okay. And uh, that's a lot of new clients. So uh, I want to ask you about how are you doing that? I know the answer is social media. So let's dig into the social media bit as to how you're doing that, because it's not just we're putting pretty pictures on Instagram. Uh, what, what, what is it that you're doing? So we, we do that through number one is advertising across multiple platforms. So that's a big part of it. Um, Instagram is integral in what we do. So uh, we have a schedule of how it gets posted, um, how many times we post, how many stories get put up every day. Um, everyone in the salon and in our company is required to contribute to our salon page. So they all have access to it. It's like every other part of our business. They are our salons, like it's their salon, it's their Instagram. So they treat it as such. So every person in the salon, if it's an intern, an assistant, a protege, a level five, they all are contributing to our Instagram and to uh, all our platforms. So through that and through the advertising, because we have so much um, engagement with it, um, we're able to reach a, a huge number of new clients. Um, we're, we engage on Instagram. We're, we're constantly in a conversation with our clients and that has been something we've done before COVID. And, and that was one of the, the biggest things during COVID because we weren't fighting to start Instagram or start really using Instagram. We were so in it that like we had a jump on a lot of people because we were already in that culture and we believed in it. Okay. So, but a lot of it is advertising, Google ads, Facebook ads, Instagram ads. A lot of it is that it's not just, you know, nice pictures on your feed. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. All right. And that is generating 120 to 150 new clients a month in every salon, which is fantastic. But then the question becomes, that's great. That's 40 new clients a week. Uh, that's great. That's one person absolutely rammed you know, more than one person in reality. It's probably two people absolutely rammed. So then the retention becomes an issue because if you're constantly getting 120, 150 new clients a week, a month, sorry, uh, 40 new clients a week, you can only be fitting them in if, if there is a big turnover of those clients, that you're not keeping them. Mm -hmm. Am I making sense with that? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in on that. So, Absolutely. So a lot of these new clients are obviously going to go to a lot of our newest stylists too. And the yeah. assistants that go through the education program and, and get ramped up there. Um, a lot of our level five stylists and level four, they do a lot of pre-booking. So they don't need as many unless somebody uh, DMs or calls specifically asking for this person because they love their balayage or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, so we, we have to make sure the, the biggest thing too is, is definitely our, our pre-booking. Um, we look at it constantly. Our most important pre-booking isn't repeat customers. They're already trained to pre-book. Um, our most important thing is looking at new clients and making sure we can see how many new clients, obviously, and we could see if, uh, you know, this person got 10 new clients, how many did they pre-book? So we also learn how to divvy them up to and give it to the person who's performing better with the new clients, or we have to have um, you know, we have to regroup and talk to somebody and make sure that they know this is the cost of every client and it's vitally important to make sure they pre-booked. Yeah. Do, do your wives both work in the salons? Yes. 
Like behind so our, the chair? No. Uh, no, no, no. Not our, behind the chair. Our not behind the chair. Work, yeah, yeah, they don't work behind the chair, but they're they run the day-to-day operations in the salon. They're the yeah. they're the glue of what we do. So Phil and I, a lot of it are our ideas of growth. We put the systems together, but our wives are the ones that actually make it happen. They're, they're in the trenches taking grenades. Like they're there every day, like (laughs) eating the teams, like without them, I can't say it enough. Like without them, we would never be able to do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's great. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. Look, unfortunately we need to uh, start uh, thinking about wrapping up. There's a couple of things I wanted to just touch on. Um, And you've already You've already mentioned one of them. I'm not sure who did. I think it was you, David. Uh, you said that you charge for consultations. Um, so, so just tell us about that. What, what do you charge? And is that just for new clients or is that redeemable against if they have the service? Like, how does that work? You, you can touch I'll, I'll, I'll jump on it. So we charge $25 for a consultation and it's 15 yeah. minutes. That's as, as simple as it is. It doesn't go into your service. We look at everything on an hourly basis. Like David was saying, if you work 10 hours and it's $150 an hour, we value the our, our stylist time. So we also learned that most people won't cancel a consultation if you're getting charged for it, even yeah. if it's $25. And it's the same thing with the cancellation policy. Do we get one or two people that don't show up? Or, absolutely. But it, it, it prevents most of them from not showing up, right? So it was a measure that we put, and especially because of COVID, we, we work with people. Uh, obviously, if somebody got sick, we don't want you to come into the salon. So we really don't use the word cancel. We will reschedule, yeah. right? Sure. It's it definitely for the protection of, uh, of our stylists more than anything. Yeah, that was actually going to be the last question I was going to ask you about, was that because I know from what you said to me the other day that you have a, uh, a 48-hour cancellation policy uh but i get it with covid it's a there's obviously a lot of flexibility around these things but uh that's interesting because i was talking to uh, another a jersey uh hairdresser who was on the podcast last week james elba and he also has a 48 hour cancellation policy he even gets them to pay they pay up front 48 hours before their appointment um and so i mean again obviously there's flexibility about it if, if someone's you know ill or whatever and it's it's genuine but it, it does uh it does stop those people you know just uh not showing because the sun's shining and they've you know gone to the beach for the day or whatever so uh and i think that sort of thing in our industry is long overdue so I take my hat off to you for doing it because uh, I think a lot of people have been very casual about that um, appointment at the hairdressers and doesn't matter if you decide not to show at the last minute. And uh, I think COVID, that's another thing with COVID. It is really showing that it does, you know, and that people can't afford, you know, to, to have uh, uh, no shows, you know, that it's, it's a business you're running and you've got to take it seriously. Um, look, we, we need to wrap up. Um, I, I want to I say a couple of things. First of all, I want to say, uh, thank you so much for being so candid and so honest about, you know, your personal life, but also about your business and your numbers. Because, you know, sometimes people say to me, someone said to me just the other day, they said, uh, gosh, you're very blunt uh, with the questions that you ask people. And, you know, I, I don't want the listeners to think that I, I you know, have, have sort of uh, 
what's the, what's the word, you know, ambushed you to talking about numbers and stuff. You know, we, we, we discussed it beforehand, whether you were called cool to talk about it or not. And, and you were very uh, open about talking about anything. So, uh, so I haven't held back on that because I think that's what people are really interested in. Now they want to know how you're doing this and uh, um, you know, you're doing some, some, you know, revolutionary things there and you're getting some really good results out of it. And I think that, you know, the, the thing about the industry, every business is always evolving. And, and COVID um, has been an absolute disruptor for every industry. And uh, it's made things, you know, evolve quicker than what they would have. And it, it's, it's people are sort of, you know, clutching at straws and looking for, you know, new and interesting ways of treating their team and treating their businesses and treating their clients. And, um, you know, it's not a case of one way being right for everybody, but I think you're doing some amazing things there that will inspire a lot of people. So uh, I wanted to, to really thank you for being so open and honest about sharing all that. So uh, before we wrap up, uh, whereabouts can people uh, connect with you on Instagram or other social channels or website? Where, where can they sort of reach out and have a look at what you're all about? So the easiest way is definitely through Instagram. Uh, I'll throw uh, uh, the four salons out there, and I'm sure, Anthony, you could put it, it afterwards. So it's The Room Verona. It's artists and architects. The other one is The Artist Room Salon. And the newest one is Chop Maplewood. Right. And, and they're all in New Jersey, yeah? They're all in New Jersey. Uh, we handle a lot of the Instagram too. So you can contact us directly through there. We'll always reach back to everybody, to anybody, if they have any questions too. Cool. And you're, uh, you're also in the process of opening an education center. Yes. So our education center will be open. Um, we're about 45, I would say 30 to 45 days away from opening. Uh, we're right about there. And you could reach us there at at gang gang edu and it's exactly how it sounds it's gang gang g-a-n-g g-a-n-g edu great fantastic okay well look, i will put those links uh on the grow my salon business website and and in the show notes uh for today's podcast so uh if you're listening to this podcast with philippe and david and have enjoyed it then do me a favor take a screenshot on your phone uh share it to your instagram stories uh, so to wrap up, um, David and Philippe, thank you so much for being on this week's episode of the Grow My Salon Business podcast. It's been a, a real uh, pleasure to have this opportunity to, to chat with you and, and really dig into what you're doing. It's been uh, you know, very inspiring. So thank you both very much. And, and Anthony, thank you. Like I've followed you for years and, and, and I had your CDs. I've seen you speak <laughs> and it really is a pleasure and an honor to be on your podcast. Seriously. Cheers, man. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. It's, it's mutual. Thank you so much, Thank you so much Anthony. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Philippe. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you'll find us at growmysalonbusiness.com or on Facebook and Instagram at growmysalonbusiness. And if you enjoyed tuning into our podcast, make sure that you subscribe, like, and share it with your friends. Until next time, this is Anthony Whitaker wishing you continued success.